Is this going well? I think so. Okay. Yeah. We're having fun. <laughs> That's good. I'd hate to see. I'd hate to see that it wasn't. How's your, how's your glass? That's fine. Okay, yeah, good. That's going especially well. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the impishly young, Celtically hip, and luckily lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, everyone. How are we doing? Great. Pretty good. Because it's almost St. Patrick's Day. Yes. <laughs> Throughout Lent, we've been giving up alcohol. And so normally when asked me, Ashley asks me the question. What's on tap, Zach? I've been saying nothing because our editor-in-chief has decreed that we give up drinking for Lent. So mm-hmm. in the spirit of solemn penance, we do that. However, in the spirit of celebration, he has granted us a dispensation for St. Patrick's Day. And so we are drinking uh, Jameson. Jameson. So, mm-hmm. Cheers. Cheers. We're back cheers. At it. I'm, I'm pretty sure he just did this because he's coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good segue. Basically. That is a good Basically. segue. Uh, <laughs> so this week we're actually talking to Matt Malone, who is our editor in chief, and we're going to be talking to him about what it means to be in Catholic media in the age of Francis. So Matt actually became editor in chief at America October 2012, which is just a few months before Pope Francis got elected. Yeah. Um, so they're both kind of celebrating anniversaries this week on Jesuitical. So on top of St. Patrick's. Day on top of today's Pi Day. Don't mm-hmm. know if you guys noticed oh, that. Yes, it is Pi Day. <laughs> who can result? Who can recite the most numbers? I, none. Uh, <laughs> okay, three point one four one five nine six. Yeah, wow. you can just say things. <laughs> so so impressive, Zach. Okay. I'll let the listeners check me on that. Um, <laughs> anyway, great. it's SLT time. Yeah, but it's a great episode. You don't want to miss it. It is. It's, it's fun. way more interesting than pie. <laughs> <laughs> Having given up uh, sweets for Lent, I don't know if I would agree with that <laughs> right now. I'm very interested in pie, other chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in Catholic news, Ashley. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Ashley? Well, so we actually kind of mentioned this already. It's Tuesday was Pope Francis's five-year anniversary Mm -hmm. of becoming Pope. Um, So we're going to be talking about this in the interview segment because our editor-in-chief, Matt Malone, was there in Rome at the Vatican uh, when the first Jesuit Pope was announced. So we're going to ask him what that was like. Yeah, and the the high points of their tenures have sort of overlapped a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? So all the big Pope Francis stories have been the big stories that Matt's covered, Father Matt's covered as editor-in-chief of America. Yeah. So more on that later. Um, in addition to St. Patrick's Day, Pi Day, Pope Francis anniversary. It's also National Catholic Sisters Week. Uh, we have this week every year where um, we recognize the amazing work that Catholic religious sisters do, which, you know, they're kind of our favorite story to cover yeah. on Jesuitical, so we yeah. couldn't not talk about some great nun stories this this week. Yeah. Did you guys uh, ha- know any nuns growing up or any that really impacted you or made a difference in your life? I definitely did. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in the Bronx, which was run by the Sisters of Mercy. So we had nuns who were theology teachers. Uh, Sister Anne was my principal, and she's still the principal there, so shout out to her. <laughs> um, so nuns have been a part of my, were just a dominant part of my teenage years. So it wasn't until like Fordham and then working at America I was like oh people mostly inter- might mostly interact with priests I was like oh nuns were the force like the religious force in my That's life growing so up interesting yeah. yeah Ashley uh so so there was the I went to 
public school my entire life, so I was mm-hmm. not going to school with nuns. But I did go to CCD, and uh, Sister Mary Margaret was the head of CCD at St. Agnes in Arlington. Um, I didn't have the greatest impression of her, but like once I was thinking about it, I was like, she never actually did anything mean to me. I think it was just my older brother was such a troublemaker that he was constantly getting in trouble, uh, and so she <clears> was punishing <throat> him. But he probably deserved it. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't really hold that against her. <laughs> so it sounds like you owe sister an apology. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sister Margaret. <laughs> what about you, Zach? So this actually goes into our first story. Um, I, I'll say, I, I, like Ashley, I went to public school, so I did not know many sisters until I got to Loyola, where I met Sister Jean, who was featured in the New York Times this week. Uh, Sister Jean, who we've brought up on the show before, mm-hmm. uh, she is chaplain of Loyola Chicago's basketball team. Um, Loyola is dancing in the NCAA tournament for the first time in 30 years, um, and so that's a big deal. And so, as a result of that, uh, people are maybe attributing their success to the Miracles that Sister Jean works um, as chaplain. Um, but I brought the story because uh, I had a little tweet storm about this today that I'm, I'm really excited that Sister Jean is getting all this attention and love. Um, she's 98, but she also does so much ministry around Loyola that people don't notice that there aren't any like reporters covering. Um, when I was there uh, in from 2011, 2015, I saw Sister Jean taking the, you know, the 147 bus downtown you know, every day to go to her office there where she'd pass out copies of the student paper to the kids who were taking the shuttle bus, not the public <laughs> transportation back up to Lakeshore campus. Um, she lived in a freshman dorm um, where she held a weekly prayer group for students, which is very intimate. Um, she was menaced constantly. Like people mentioned her, someone tweeted back who I don't even know and said, you know, someone told sister Jean that I had, I was having a hard time and she met with me once a week for like six months. Um, I was just a stranger. And so, um, she started a volunteer program with getting students involved with lives. The elder, I mean, it's just a million things. Um, and I thought sister Jean represents, uh, sort of the best of women religious. I think sometimes nuns and sisters get trivialized because it's like, Oh, look at this nun. They're doing Mm -hmm. this thing. Um, but they represent the best of the church. Um, and they do a lot of great work and it's often unnoticed and, um, unpraised. And so that is why I brought sister Jean's story this week. Speaking of, yes, there is one nun or sister, not a nun who is getting, uh, recognition this week. Uh, sister Norma Pimentel, the executive director of Catholic charities of the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Um, she's being recognized with the university of Notre Dame's 2018 Latere. Did I say that right? Latare. Latare. Medal. Um, so each year, Notre Dame gives out this award recognizing um, a different Catholic. Last year, I think it was John Boehner and Joe Biden jointly got this award. Yes. Um, but this year, it's Sista. 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 Greg Boyle was 2017. I think they were the year 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. So yeah, so some big names mm-hmm. have gotten this this uh, award before, but this year it is Sister Pimentel. So she has advocated and worked with immigrants and refugees um, in Texas and also uh, people in need of emergency food and shelter or pregnancy care mm-hmm. or clinical counseling. So she is certainly someone who is like on the frontiers, working with the people um, and just the kind of person who I think deserves to be lifted up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to. I just wanted to say uh, we've had this brought up before. A friend of the show, Sister Julia Walsh, has pointed out that uh, we often use the terms nun and sister interchangeably. Mm, yes, um, we and do. so I, I we sort of committed to setting mm. the record straight. Yes. Um, so 
while they're often used interchangeably, they refer to two different groups of people in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, a nun is someone who lives a, a more cloistered life, a uh, set apart. It revolves around prayer, you, like kind of a monastery, monasterial uh, vocation, whereas a sister uh, has her vocation very active and in the world. And so they're working in ministries with other people, mm -hmm. um, going about doing all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, but none is better in social media headlines. So yeah. it often gets used. I know. Uh, <laughs> religious sister just isn't as clickbaity as, as none. As none. Um, and even like the style guide for, uh, the Catholic news service, uh, which is under the U S bishops, it's the media organization. We follow their style guide. Mm -hmm. Uh, it says you can, use them interchangeably Oof, even yeah. though it's technically not correct so yeah. i'm sorry sister julia but i hope yeah. this helps set the record straight yeah. <laughs> one more sister story so zach you touched on this a little bit um how nuns don't sort of get the recognition that they deserve. There's a story coming out of the Vatican. There is a magazine called Women Church World that is a monthly, uh, it's a monthly women's magazine. It's run by women. Um, and it is published along with La Sobratori Romano, which is the Vatican's newspaper. And they just published this expose where a lot of nuns are talking about the treatment that they're receiving from the Vatican. So for example, one of the, one of the nuns that was quoted states that, you know, they often wake up really early and cook breakfast for cardinals and bishops stay up and to serve them dinner and clean and they're often not invited to share meals with them they're not treated very well and even they have no contracts with whatever parish or school they're working at um so they're making very little money and not at all getting recognized so the editor of this um Sorry, I didn't was... even know this this magazine. Yeah, existed. first of all, this this yeah. this is new to me. Was this I... a surprise to you, both of you, Ashley? Olga? Yeah, no, yeah. I had no idea. And it falls under like it's the like would you say an official Vatican yes. magazine? Yes, it yeah. has like the imprimatur of mm -hmm. the church. Yeah. and the editor is uh, Lucetta Scarafia, who is a feminist intellectual and a professor. And she so runs a laywoman. It. It's not a, a laywoman. Yeah, yeah, she's not. Um, so she's a laywoman, and she's saying that you know this is one of the first time that women have had the courage to kind of step forward and talk about the treatment that they're facing and this is something we've talked about often the fact that sisters and nuns are after are often at the forefront of doing all the work and really going out into the peripheries within the church and mm -hmm. in the world and not getting this kind of recognition and it, it's something pope francis has also talked mm -hmm. about um he once said that he he finds that consecrated women often uh perform a labor of servitude and not service and he's mm -hmm. not blaming them he's saying he says, quote, when a consecrated woman is asked to perform a work of servitude, the life and dignity of that woman are demeaned. Um, so there he makes because I think a lot of women consecrated or lay often, mm -hmm. you know, work in service and feel called to that. And it's hard to draw the line between where, you know, where you're just being self-giving in a in a in a good way and yeah, where yeah. you need to, you know, stick up for yourself. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of the women who have been quoted are like. You know, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to say no. You know, mm -hmm. when you're presented with someone saying, hey, can you just do this for me? Serve mm -hmm. me dinner. You don't want to say no because you want to be giving. But, you know, like you're saying, it's like a fine line that you have to yeah. navigate. Yeah. You know? And Pope Francis specifically said, have the courage to say no when mm -hmm. superiors are asking you to right. do servitude instead of service. Because servitude is, you know, serving your superiors, mm -hmm. not not serving the people of God. And right. there's a difference. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, the church can talk all at once about how, you know, it's pro-woman and that society doesn't necessarily reflect the labor that uh, lay women put in, especially in like in homemaking and raising children. Um, and then uh, that's obviously changed now with men getting more involved in those roles too. But our own house isn't even... Can you imagine a priest like or brother 
like <laughs> like cleaning up after a religious sister like i can't even no imagine i can't nope. honestly i can't imagine that. It, no and that says a lot yeah mm-hmm. um has pope francis uh, I, I mean i'll be interested to see what comes out of this uh um I, we're assuming that pope francis reads this magazine um mm-hmm. maybe he'll say something maybe uh a speech or a letter and that will hopefully start a slow change in yeah. this attitude so what's next, Zach? So today is Wednesday. We're recording. Um, and it's uh, National Walkout Day for students who are protesting gun violence. Um, this comes out of the Parkland shooting. We're a little over a month I think out. this is the one month. This is the one yeah. month yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all over the country, hundreds of thousands of students are walking out of class to protest uh, inaction on gun laws in this country. Um, and that of course affects Catholic schools as well. Yeah, no, we've seen we've seen pictures of of students at uh, Jesuit school high schools like Gonzaga uh, walking out of class, and it's it's an interesting thing because they're they're walking out of school. So you know, I, you can imagine being a high school principal and being like, ah, oh, like I can't let them do mm-hmm. this, but they're doing it to make those schools safe. <laughs> like it's like not like <laughs> begging the adults to like yeah. Yeah. not mm-hmm. let us get killed. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, this raises a question of how should Catholics be responding? Um, and so one of the ways that we, we just mentioned is that Catholic students are walking out of school. Um, the USCCB has been very clear, um, like supporting bans, uh, like common sense gun laws, what mm-hmm. we call common sense gun laws, at least mm-hmm. um, banning all assault rifles, um, supporting background checks. Um, American Magazine has come out editorially in mm-hmm. favor of uh, appealing the Second Amendment. And Zach, you are in favor of taking away all the guns. I am, I am in favor of taking away all the guns. <laughs> and I'm happy to... We gave up political debate, so I won't say much more about that. Um, yeah. But, you know, it does raise a question of how, how should Catholics be responding? This is one way. Another way we saw come out of uh, Catholic University in Florida this week. Yeah, uh, St. Thomas University. They hired Anita Britt as their CFO. And then a month, this was in early January. Then a month later, they discovered that she was on the board of American Outdoor Brands, which is the parent company for Smith & Wesson, which uh, they manufactured. They created the AR-15 that was used in the Parkland shooting. And makes so many guns. And makes so many guns. And so, makes so much money. Yeah. So there was an online petition that was circulating end of February with critics, people on students, faculty sort of calling for her resignation because they were like, you know, this clearly presents a conflict of interest because she works at a Catholic organization and this goes against what we believe. So at at first, um, the administration was sort of deferential and Mm -hmm. like, well, this doesn't necessarily conflict with their their work Mm -hmm. at a Catholic university. If anything, it means they can steer the ship right at this parent company of smith and wesson that we have what we have someone on the inside (laughs) right right uh which felt sounded like bogus to a lot of people because it is bogus it's bad moral reasoning yeah and i mean they're steering the ship but they're also profiting Mm mm-hmm off of AR, AR sales. Yeah. So after a lot of pressure, the president of St. Thomas, whose name is Monsignor Franklin Cassell, um, eventually asked her to either resign from her position at St. Thomas or resign from the American Outdoor Brands Board. And she chose to resign from St. Thomas University. But what's great about this is that we're seeing Catholic institutions take concrete steps if yeah. in this, you know? Yeah, this yeah. is exactly the type of thing that I think Catholic students should be doing, is stigmatizing mm-hmm. the types of these types of things and making it a problem to, you know, own guns, to make money off guns, than the sale of guns, and that's going to lead to a better world. I mean, actions like this walkout, mm-hmm. um, like this protesting, it's going to save lives. Um, what do you think? Let us know. Send and if you in. walked out of your class listener, yeah. let us know. What, what was that experience like? Send us an email, jesuitical at americamedia.org. Thank you.
So we're super excited to welcome Matt Malone, the editor-in-chief of America, and our boss. Welcome to Jesuitical, Matt. It's wonderful to be here. Long overdue. And it's about time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's a really tough gig to get, I guess. This program has been going for about um, at least a month now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we wanted to make sure it was like uh, in tip-top shape before we brought it to you. Yes, of course. All right. Okay. (laughs) We didn't want to embarrass ourselves. That's very Jesuitical of you. Yes. That that, that justification. So we should should note that it is Lent and we, uh, in the spirit of Lent, give up drinking. But right. you've given, and we've been, we are, we do have glasses under edict. <laughs> under I think edict. Give up drinking. <laughs> That's true. It is not a self-imposed. Yeah, I didn't give up drinking for Lynn. I don't know where this came from. Uh, right. But we're we're getting a dispensation. Is that correct? Yes, by the authority vested in me by my ego. <laughs> I have I have decreed that this is within my uh, juridical authority, and so uh, yes, I've given a dispensation for St. Patrick's Day. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. So cheers to that. And here, cheers. Here. cheers. And in honor of St. Patrick, we're having Jameson, I see. Yes. yes. It's a big deal around this office, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my friends are always shocked to find out that I that we get the day off. Shock slash not even Not even St. Patrick's jealous. Day, the eve of St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. I don't yeah. know how the eve Can happened. I, but. I also think maybe next year, if, I mean, if it's on a weekday, we should get the day after St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> now, that would be, the, that would be, okay. Yes. This is so here's the thing. Good. Yes. This is perhaps my greatest innovation. <laughs> uh, so uh, when I came here, I declared that March 17th would always be a holiday for America. And the reason is because America has, for 108 years, been situated in the Archdiocese of New York, and St. Patrick is the patron of the Archdiocese of New York, and we wanted to provide an opportunity for people to go to Mass and to give thanks for the patron of the Archdiocese. It also happens to be this big Irish holiday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That is, that is the definition of Jesuitical. Well, people, yeah. like, aren't you trying to get away with something? And, and, and so I say, no, if I were really trying to get away with something, I would have declared the day after. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> very, very fair. Do you think uh, St. Patrick's Day still has any, like, what, where's the Catholic meaning? And is it like St. Valentine's Day at this point? No, I think actually, I, well, it's funny, you know, it's, it's much more celebrated uh, in the diaspora mm-hmm. than it is in Ireland. And it doesn't make people right. sad. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, and you don't have to find a date for St. Patrick's Day. Or, no. or the, oh, maybe you do. I don't, <laughs> I don't anyway. <laughs> but um, no, I actually think that the the spiritual dimension of it is, is seeing a bit of a renaissance, as it were. You know, um, so it certainly is for me. Like, uh, for me, it was always the Irish holiday. Um, and what is that spiritual side for you or for others? well, for for me, it's um it's a celebration of what the grace of God can do for a people, you know, uh, that I, I was fortunate enough uh, after soon after I got this job to give the homily on St. Patrick's Day at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Cardinal Dolan invited me to do that. and uh, Talk about highlights. That's a personal highlight for me um, to 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 be standing in the pulpit of St. Patrick's Cathedral and to see the Prime Minister of Ireland and the Mayor of New York <laughs> and then my father weeping. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. Um, so for me, the spiritual significance is you you have this people who had 
suffered so greatly uh, over the centuries and had united that suffering to the cross, uh, to the crucifixion of our Lord, and then came to this place, uh, to New York, and transformed it into a center of apostolic daring and energy um, and built all over this country the memorials to the resurrection. Uh, and that was uh, that's an, uh, that's an important testi testament to what God can do. And that's just one of the ethnic groups that came to this country. I mean, um, the Poles and the Germans and and uh, and of course the Hispanics and Latinos were already in this country. I mean, this is they've all made their own contributions. But uh, since it's this is the story in which I'm and my ancestors are most directly apart. It does mean uh, a good deal to me. Can you tell us a little bit about your vocation story? Oh, yeah. How'd Holy you wind cow. up here? I yeah. can do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, let's check the tape. Um, well, I, I, my first love was politics. Uh, I, I, I loved politics uh, from my earliest memories, uh, uh, the way that we followed the box scores for the Red Sox. I followed the comings and goings of the U.S. Senate. And uh, I was born the fifth of six kids. I grew up in Cape Cod uh, in an Irish Catholic family. And I went to UMass Amherst when I got out of that. I went to uh, work for Senator Kennedy. And then I worked for Congressman Meehan for a while as a speechwriter. Uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. Okay. And... Uh, then I spent five and a half years at a think tank based in Boston, where I thought I was going to probably run for public office. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things happened. One, I met the Jesuits. So I, I literally moved into an apartment across the street from a parish that was staffed by Jesuits in Boston. And I had never met Jesuits before. I had, I had, I had gone to public school my entire life. I went to a public high school and I went to a public university. What were those first impressions like? Uh, they were different. They struck me as different than other other priests that I had met. Uh, not necessarily better, uh, and not necessarily, worse. <laughs> not necessarily worse. <laughs> uh, but I got to know them, and I just thought that I I thought that they were really um, well. They were they were really smart. They were really they were engaged in the world in really creative ways. They were the folks that taught me how to pray. Um, and, you know, as I got to know them, I saw that they had something that I wanted, a kind of deep consolation, you know, that it, uh, you know, that's that, that experience that you sometimes have with people in which you, you detect something in them that elicits a kind of righteous jealousy, right? <laughs> like, I want what she's having, right? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's how I... That's, uh, so I got to know the Jesuits, and they taught me how to pray. That that was the first thing that happened. The second one was 9-11 uh, happened. And I think like a lot of people, uh, I began to think about, okay, how do I really want to spend my life? Uh, and you know, what are the things that are fundamentally important to me? And the third was that... Um, the closer I got to running for public office, this thing that I had wanted my entire life, the the world seemed to be getting smaller and smaller. So rather than like opening me up to the world, it's hard to describe, but it, it was just this kind of gut feeling that was like, if I did this, I was going to be trapped. 
but that's the long answer to your question. The short answer is <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I I felt that that God was was calling me to this, and somebody said something to me that was fundamentally important. You there cannot be a difference between what you most deeply desire and what God desires for you. And that helped me a lot because rather than sitting around asking God, please send me a sign telling me what to do, I, I began to, to journey inward in my prayer uh, and ask myself, okay, what do I really, really deeply desire? I suppose the operative word there, word there is deeply desire, right? Yes. But yes, not super. <laughs> no, right, yeah, because you can desire a lot of things and yes. they can be in conflict, mm -hmm. right? And th that's absolutely true. So fast forward a yeah. few years, you mm -hmm. end up as the editor-in-chief of American Magazine. Yeah. Um, five years ago, that's right? Yes, um, uh, five and a half years ago. Okay. October and 1st, 2012. Wow. Uh, so you're celebrating an anniversary like Pope Francis. But so this was <laughs> an, a magazine that's existed since 1909. Um, when you came in, I think some people would say it was kind of a low point for print magazine. Um, so w when you started, where did you see your place in the magazine's history and where did you want to take it? I mean, basically, I was asked to to come to America. It was unusual because I was ordained uh, a priest in June and I started at America in October. Now, I had been in America previously. I spent two years working in America as an associate editor when I was in training as a Would Jesuit. Would you say it's something you deeply desired to do, or was this more something where obedience came into the picture? I think it was both. I mean, it was certainly something that I desired to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I always thought that I would come back to America. I didn't, I didn't really know that it would be as soon as it was. Um, but the society really had determined that they wanted to skip a generation in the leadership of America. And that they they wanted uh, me to lead uh, an effort to adapt America to the 21st century, and and I, I actually wrestled with that. Uh, I wrestled with with whether I did deeply desire to do it uh, because I had spent 10 years preparing for priestly ordination and in studies, and I had left an organization that published a magazine, and I was like, well, wait a minute, so what have I spent the last 10 years doing? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, um, and the, the way that I, that I made sense of that, or God made sense of it for me, was uh, that I began to understand they want me to do this not as some previous incarnation of myself, but as, as a priest, right? And that was that was really helpful to me because then I would begin to ask myself, well, how do I do this job as a priest? And that led to um, an understanding of the work itself as a ministry, which became a fundamentally important in guiding our transformation. And how does that make it different than a you know a magazine or media organization that is secular? Well, in the you know. In terms of the structure of the organization and the challenges that we're facing, it it it's not that different. The work of America Media is is very much like the work of the Economist at that level, right? Um, structurally and in terms of the business challenges and so forth. But I think our orientation to it as a board, as the leadership, as staff, and as the readers um, is is fundamentally different. Like we do, we. We, we approach it as uh, a work of the church that is intended to do what all ministries do, 
which is uh, uh, participate in the reconciliation of people that um, find its ultimate expression in in Jesus Christ, who's uh, who is reconciliation for us, and that suggested then certain editorial directions for us. Um, one was that we wanted to be in, in inclusive of as many different Catholic voices as possible. We wanted to bring people together here and have them engaged in conversation that ordinarily would not be in conversation with each other. But also, we wanted to find a way to use emerging technology and, and uh, digital platforms. Uh, we wanted to experiment with ways of using those that would bring people together. Um, because uh, more, as often as they bring people together, they also drive people apart. Uh, it's been five years for you as an editor-in-chief in America, but also five years since Pope Francis has been elected. Yes. Uh, one of your first assignments was going to Rome yeah. to cover the conclave, right? So That's I big. was there the night it happened. Yeah, well, can you just describe those moments yeah. when you found out about Pope Francis being elected? A Jesuit being elected pope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was standing uh, at a food stand outside of the Secretariat for Communications in at the Vatican, um, and I was trying to figure out whether this thing that was advertised as a hot dog actually was a hot dog, <laughs> <laughs> or whether it was something that Romans might think is a hot dog yes. that actually isn't a hot dog. And just then, I, there was this, it felt almost literally like a wave of sound that emanated from the from the plaza to my left and washed over me and flowed down the uh, uh, conciliazione and into the Tiber uh, where it spilled out into the city. And it was just this tsunami of sound. And it was a cheer because the smoke had gone up. And so I started moving toward the square and, you know, I was waiting there to find out who it was. Mm -hmm. And how long does that take from white smoke to Pope? You know, I don't remember exactly. It, it was probably an hour. Mm -hmm. You know, in that, um, and uh, it was it was it was raining. They announced who it was, and and I I, I have a hearing loss, and it was quite loud in the square. And I thought they said Brolio, when Tim Brolio was the Archbishop for the Military Services, and I thought he's not even a cardinal. <laughs> could, why would they pick Tim Brolio? And it's an American. Yeah. And then the person next to me says, "No, Bergoglio, Jesuit." And I said, "That can't be right because he's a Jesuit. <laughs> right, he'll right. never elect a Jesuit." <laughs> then I figured out that this was really happening. Why do people say they would never elect a Jesuit? Why was that the, the sort of the conventional well, wisdom? Yeah. Well, I think a couple of reasons. One, that the ministry of the society, particularly in the last 50 or 60 years, has been to uh, the margins, right? Um, to those, uh, to the peripheries, as, as Pope Francis calls it. Um, and well, the peripheries are quite a distance from the center, right? right. <laughs> and uh, so it was thought that the charism of the society is more oriented outward to that, to those peripheries than it is involved in the central governance of the church, right? But secondly, more practically, you know, since the, the papacy and the Jesuits have had uh, an on-again, off-again romance in <laughs> over four <laughs> centuries, right? And, and most recently in the 1980s, uh, uh, Pope John Paul felt obligated to intervene in the internal governance of the society because we were down in Latin America getting involved in all kinds of things that people thought we maybe shouldn't have been involved in. And and so to go from 30 or 40 years ago where we were at one of the lowest points in the relationship between the papacy and the society to a place where the Pope was a Jesuit 
it just seemed inconceivable. And how has that changed? I mean, I guess you can't really say what your role at America would have been like or what America would be like under five more years of Pope Benedict. But has has the papacy of Pope Francis changed America in any way? Are we or? doing as well as we are without Francis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so because I th- we would have done whatever we uh, we would have done what what we've done anyway, right? Uh, we but there's no denying like he there, attracts a lot of you know even secular media attention in a way that that is know. absolutely true. And and you know a, a key moment for I think that the for for folks in the U.S. in their uh, rediscovery of America was the the interview that we published with yeah. the Pope, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, uh, a huge moment in the history of this organization. And also, also my in first the life week here. Right. Right. That was <laughs> September of 2013, right? Right. That was the first right. time I'd ever read America. Right. The Pope interview. And so that, you know, yes, that that brought renewed attention to America and to the Jesuits. You know, a lot of people started, you know, a lot of young men started to inquire uh, about life in the Jesuits and Jesuit priesthood and so forth. And and I think there was probably an uptick in in interest in what we were saying and doing. Um, I mean, it's an interesting, it, it, it's interesting because while people look to America to help to interpret the papacy of this first Jesuit pope, um, we also you know, want to maintain a, a little bit of distance in order to do our work uh, effectively as, as journalists. And, you know, we want to be able to critique the Pope when we think the Pope has not done something as well as he could have. Well, so, I've never heard a, a Jesuit complain about another Jesuit, so I find that, <laughs> that preposterous. <laughs> I would say this, that the, uh, if, if he becomes a saint, he already has his first miracle, which is he got Jesuits to all agree on something. <laughs> Which is him? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like uh, the it, people having a good opinion of him is the first time that the Jesuits have ever agreed on something. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, it's been five years. Um, what have been the key moments in, in this papacy, or, or what have been the highlights in your tenure? But I guess they overlap, so it's the same question, really. Yeah, um, yeah, they do. They do overlap. I, I mean, I think uh, that certainly. Where the two converge is, as I said in that papal interview. Uh, now, five years later, it so seems it's all been like... downhill from there. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Has been for me. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could you find people and bring them on who would tell you yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly what's happened. Um, it, well, not in my judgment. For but, those who haven't read the interview, like what what stood out in that for you? Because there were a lot yeah. of like very moving things. I I had to go through it and pick out like tweets from it. And, right. Like, I just like I wanted to tweet the whole thing. But right. What, what do you remember? This was an extraordinary thing. I mean, yeah. nowadays, meaning just five years later, uh, we're accustomed to the Pope giving interviews yeah, and right. uh, and and holding press conferences and 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 saying things in uh, a kind of off the cuff. But that had never really happened before. I mean, the Pope Benedict had given book length interviews. Uh, but they had always been highly redacted, and they were highly philosophical, highly theological. This pope gave us an entirely new genre of papal communications uh, that was really more uh, personal rather than propositional. That was more uh, from the heart than from the head. And you know, when we finally got that interview back from the translators, I remember 
reading it in my office. I was the first person to read it and I was reading it in my office and I was like, oh, okay. So, oh, 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 <laughs> this translation can't be right. <laughs> I was like, because no poet had ever spoken this frankly before um, and this freely and about his failures, about his, uh, his concerns about the church, about people who were criticizing him. For me, there were, there were, there were two central insights there that, and, and if people have not read the interview or have not read it in a while, they should go back and read it because it is the, it's still to this day, the Rosetta Stone for this papacy. Yeah. We'll he, include that in our show notes. It covers too. everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and also the four weeks of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius are all there in that interview. Um, so he's asked, who is Jorge Mario Bocolio? And he says, I am a sinner. That's the first question and answer. That struck me. Uh, that that was, we were not accustomed to Pope speaking that way. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that. And then later on, he describes the, the, the church as a field hospital after a battle and how uh, we have to tend the wounds. No matter what we do, we have to tend to the wounds. That, that what we're engaged in in this sort of postmodern world is the work of spiritual and pastoral triage. But what struck me was how he put those together um, in his answer to that first question because he clearly sees himself as a patient in the hospital. That was deeply meaningful to me because you can see that that's how he understands his ministry. It's understand how he understands his discipleship, how he understands his ministry as a priest and as pope. Um, and I thought, boy, that's 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 new to have a pope speak openly about in, about how our 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 weakness is made strength um, by the grace of God. That was how did that moved me. Does that influence how how you lead America or how you see America's ministry? Well, I think it. It certainly influences how I see my own, which is uh, I am also a patient in the um, well. I, I, I'm in the intensive care unit. He, <laughs> he might be in the, in recovery in the recovery unit. I don't know. <laughs> but um, so this actually is also an answer to the question that uh, you asked earlier: is how are we different from, say, the Economist or something mm -hmm. like that? Other than you know, presenting from the scope and so forth. It's we actually want to consciously lead from that place of weakness, right? Um, I mean, a ministry should. It, should. it should lead from that kind of lived experience of the sheer gratuity of our creation and our redemption. Um, that's not how The Economist leads in its marketplace, right? <laughs> no. They would sort <laughs> of scoff very... at the idea of the patient running the hospital. Right, <laughs> yes. right, exactly. And I used to have a a, a Jesuit priest when I was in formation who used to say to me, Matt, I think I know that you were strong enough to be a priest. The question is, are you weak enough? Hmm. Are you in touch with that part of yourself? Um, and I thought, haven't you been listening? I, it seems to be the only part I'm in touch with. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I think that that's really important and it, it keeps you grounded. Mm. So, OK, Matt, we ask all of our guests, um, if you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? We all have prop bets. <laughs> so, um, uh, Sergeant Shriver, 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Sergeant Shriver was uh, a uh, he was the the husband of Eunice Shriver, who was uh, President Kennedy's sister. Uh, she founded the Special Olympics along with Sergeant Shriver. Sergeant Shriver was the first uh, director of the uh, Peace Corps. And uh, he was also in charge of the war on poverty for President Johnson. And he was the last pro-life Democratic national candidate for um, for vice president in 1972. But up, apart from that, he was an intensely devout person. Um, and... In 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 his everyday life, uh, just in in a, in a thousand different ways, gave testimony to uh, his holiness and to uh, how the grace of God worked in his life and in the life of his family. And and I think we could use more role models that well, we could use any role model from politics. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that uh, that you know we could use more role models in the sense that are, are really approachable, you know, where you could look and say, geez, I might be able to do that. Yeah. You know, uh, that's a bit more down to earth. So Sergeant Shriver, pray for us. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so one last thing before we sign off, yeah. um, we know that, uh, we should tell our listeners that, uh, they owe a special thanks to you if they enjoy the show because we know this was somewhat of a risky venture. It's a little bit outside of America's traditional voice. Um, and so on behalf of all of us, yeah. thank you for yeah. always being behind us and supporting us and giving us a, a shot. Yeah. Thanks um, for believing in us. Like, yeah. even before I think we fully believed in what we were doing with this podcast, you gave us a shot. And here we are a whole year later. And in it's a very amazing fancy what you've done. Studio. In a very it's fancy amazing studio. what you've done. And uh, I, I couldn't be prouder. I couldn't be prouder of your work. We talk about the history of America. I always say to people, like, the way to convince me to do something new is not to come in and say, we're going to do something we've never done before. But to come in and say, we're going to do this thing we've always done in a completely new way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I look back at the history of America, um, you know, ha having engaging young people in a conversation about what it means to be a Catholic in this particular moment in history in the life of the church and in the life of the United States is what we've always done. Yeah. And this is the way to do it today. So it's at the heart of America's voice, I would say. Excellent. Well, I agree. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank okay. you, Matt. Thanks for joining Until us. next time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that like a year from now? We got to talk to Eloise about that. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't like the last time I get a drink from you guys. No. Right? no, no. Okay. All right. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Congratulations. Matt. Okay, now it's time for some listener feedback. We once again want to give shout outs to the people who are joining our Patreon page, which is super exciting. Yeah, so this week we've got some VIPs. We've got Cody Tiford and Vivian Veloso McCaspeck. And two more super fans, Jim Arassi and Ben Bartosik. Yes, and it's been, you know, if you go to the Patreon page, people are already getting access to video portions of our interviews, which are, you know, full cuts. Um, and we're already in, com you know, people are already suggesting other things that they'd like to see um, as patron benefits. And so it's a really great community. And please check that out if you haven't. It's patreon.com slash America Media. And that'll be in our show notes. And each month we're doing an online chat with our patrons and that's coming up. So if you want to be a part of that hangout chat 
with it's like us. a video chat, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. So we'll be hanging great. out in the studio. Not probably not drinking because it'll probably it'll still be Lent. <laughs> but after that, we'll be sharing drinks. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to get on that, um, get on our Patreon page um, before the end of this month, and it's Patreon.com/slash America Media. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? Okay, so mine's a little, it feels a little silly this week. Uh, I, have a, I have a desolation that is basically a Snickers commercial. Um, <laughs> I say that. I um, was uh, working pretty long and uh, hard yesterday and sort of in, a, in my own personal space. Um, and I, you know, sort of worked through lunch and it, all of a sudden it was like three o'clock. I hadn't eaten anything. And, and I was actually, you know, talking with our, uh, Jesuit formation director, um, who also works at, who I also work with at America, Father Eric Sunjup. And I would just very quickly was going down this like spiral pit of despair, like about my work here and like the things I'm doing and not being good at stuff. And he was like, wait, you haven't eaten. Have you? He's like, that's rules. You know, like rules of discernment. I'm not talking to you while you're in this hangry phase. Go, you know, go eat food. And he, he literally kicked me out of the, kicked me out of my desk. Um, but it just goes like, you know, Ignatius says like, you can't make decisions. You can discern, but you can't make decisions when you're in desolation. And when your body is, you know, weak and susceptible to things, it's very easy. It's sort of like being really tired. You know, people always say everything's worse when you're sleep deprived. Um, it's sim- in a similar way, like you have to pay attention to if you're hungry, if you've had enough sleep and how that's affecting your own decision making and how you're relating to the world and whether or not you're, how you're feeling connected with God. So I got hangry yesterday, but I really do think it says something about the spiritual life. So that's why I brought it as my desolation this week. Did you have a good lunch? Afterwards? I did. It was great. It was leftovers. <laughs> you know, I got a little food in me. Okay, because um, you don't seem hangry now. <laughs> no, I'm feeling better. Much better. Okay. What about you, Olga? Um, I've got a consolation this week. Um, so as my co-hosts know, because I was out, and listeners, because I was out, um, I got back from the Holy Land last Sunday. Um, well, two Sundays ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just such a wonderful experience to just be completely removed from New York City and be really present and just completely immersed in Catholicism day to day. I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, for the past year, I've been exploring my faith with you guys on the show. I've been exploring my faith with my significant other who's Protestant. And for like this trip was the first time that I was doing that just on my own, like God was mm-hmm. speaking directly to me. Um, and this next thing, I'm always a little uncomfortable sharing this, but I'm not baptized. Um, and as Father Sam Sawyer, who's an executive editor at America, he was also with me on the Holy Land pilgrimage. He called me a cradle Catholic without the sacraments. Um, <laughs> and there was this really beautiful moment where we were in the Jordan River and he's renewing everyone's baptismal promise. And I'm kind of like, oh, hey, Sam, does this mean that I'm baptized now because you threw water on me? And he's like, no, that's not how it works. But But I was like the sense of disappointment that I felt in that moment made Mm. me realize that this is the first time that I want to be baptized and I want to enter into that community. And it's because I realized God has led me there. And that was just super consoling and super wonderful. And I was just there thinking like, I can't wait. Like I shared it with our producer, Eloise, who's there as well. I was like, I can't go. She was kind of like you can just do this here. Like we have priests, let's get baptized here. And I was like, no, I want to go back home. I want to do this with you guys. I want you guys to be present. I want my significant other to be there. Um, But just coming back with that and knowing that I wanted to fully immerse myself into the Catholic community was consoling. Boom. Wow, that's amazing. I know. What up? I know. Now I just got to follow that. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, But what about you, Ashley? 
Oh God, I'm gonna sound so terrible after that no, wonderful no, thing. No, no, you won't. So I mean, I, maybe. <laughs> no, no. So mine's like a desolation that kind of turns into a consolation. Um, so I wrote this article for America Magazine um, about this ministry in Chicago uh, that uh, works with uh, people who have lost family members or close friends to suicide. Um, and I worked on it for a very long time. I really cared about it and then it was not chosen to be on the cover of the magazine that it was placed in and there is a part of me that is prideful and I recognize that I'm not proud of that (laughs) if that makes sense um but like I was just like I couldn't get over the like there's a part of me that's like why isn't it on the cover like Mm -hmm. I work so hard and I wanted to be on the cover and but then I like that like that's terrible like the desolation was that like I was so focused on me and my name being on a cover that like I couldn't it was hard for me to like remember why I did write this article um but Thankfully, people who actually read the article reminded me um, and the, you know, some of the feedback I've gotten back from people who have read it and it's actually helped, um, which I credit to the brave women who talked to me about their stories that that's all them. But like there's even a woman in New York who, you know, I'm in contact with now who wants to start her own a a New York chapter of this Mm -hmm. suicide ministry. Um, So I'm going to put her in contact with the lost ministry. So I that was a very good reminder to me to like stop, get out of my own head and see where God is working, you know, through through this ministry and through America's bringing it to other people. Um, So, yeah. And it's a really, really wonderful article. Like you guys should all check it out at America and read that. Yeah. But I, I, I was talking to this uh, about this with uh, father Sundrup and he was like, he's like, like we all have, not everyone works at a magazine, but we all have like magazine covers in our lives. Like the thing, like places where our pride comes into it and like pride can be a good thing, but like, When it, like, makes you want to work hard, but it can also get in the way of seeing God, which it Hmm. did for me for a couple weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. Alrighty. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondiel. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Canta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Bridget Sebi. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.